0: Good morning, everyone. For those of you who are new, my name is Thomas, and I'm the youth pastor here at the church. And it's my privilege this morning to bring us back into our sermon series through the book of Mark. We started this series back in April and made it through the first three chapters. And then in late August, we took a two-week break to talk about soul care with Pastor Cody and then spent three weeks with Pastor Jake talking about who we are as a church. And this morning, we're back at it again. If you're interested in hearing some of those sermons, you can hop onto our website, rbcstthomas.ca, and catch up on chapters 1 to 3. But today, we're in chapter 4. So if you would, please turn there in your Bibles if you have one with you. If not, no problem. We'll have words on the screen. And as you do that, let me refresh you on where we've been. Mark starts his gospel this way. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark tells us he's going to tell us the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. Not Jesus' last name Christ, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Rescuer, Jesus our hero, who happens to also be the Son of God. That is a lofty introduction. And as you would expect from that, the first three chapters have just been a meteoric rise to fame and prominence on Jesus' part. It starts in chapter 1 with his baptism, and you may remember Pastor Jake preached on that and told us how, how the heavens ripped open when Jesus was baptized. And the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, and a voice thundered from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And from that start, Jesus went on to teach and spread the news of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom had come calling people to repent and believe the gospel. And he went out and he healed people who were sick, and he cast out demonic spirits from people. And on his rise, he faced opposition. But when the scribes and the Pharisees challenged him, they more often than not left silenced and amazed. Let me back that up. Every time they left silenced, sometimes they were even amazed in spite of themselves. And so it should be no surprise that as we get to chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus is so popular. So many people have flocked to him as he stands beside the Sea of Galilee that he actually has to get into the lake and back up into a boat so that everybody can see him better. That's how popular he is. He can't connect with everyone. There's too many people there. And so he gets into a boat and he sets off from shore so that he can teach the people. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. And I want to ask you this. If you had amassed that kind of following, if you had a shoreline littered with people who were eager to do your will, who would follow you presumably to the ends of the earth, who wanted to be part of whatever it was you were up to, what would you do with that moment? What would you say? What principle would you give the people to live their lives with? What cause would you call them to commit to? How would you take that moment And direct your followers to go and change the world. Really think about it for a moment. Whatever it is you're thinking, I'm confident of one thing. It's not what Jesus is about to do. He's about to do something that if we can just kind of get the times we've heard this story out of our heads will shock us will make us feel strange, will seem odd. Have a look at Mark chapter four with me. Again, he that is Jesus began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things, here it is, in parables and stories. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus turns to this massive crowd of followers and starts talking in code to them. He starts telling cryptic stories, almost speaking to them in riddles, which is the last thing that you and I would want him to do. Just think about the oddness of it for a moment. Forget what you know about this parable, and imagine if your favorite political figure or celebrity or... Pastor or whoever, which by the way should be Pastor Jake if you have one, was up in front of a mass of people, that's for free, brother, and, was, and was, had this opportunity to, to say whatever they wanted to, a thousand people foaming at the mouth to go and make a difference. And imagine if that person got up and said, welcome everyone, today's a great day. Let me tell you a story. There was a guy who went and knocked on some doors as a fundraiser. Some people slammed the door in his face. Some people seemed interested, but didn't end up doing anything. Some people were interested, but cared about other stuff more, and some people raised some money. Have a nice day. How bizarre would that be? How would you feel? This moment to go and make such an impact, and it feels like they've squandered it. In fact, I think that's a little bit of how the disciples feel. I think they were probably confused, maybe even outright dismayed. Take a look at verse 10 with me. This is where I'm getting it from. And when he, that is Jesus, was alone, those around him with the 12, sorry, let me pause right there. I hate to admit this, but Jesus is an extrovert because he's with 12 or more people and it says he's alone. And every introvert in the room knows that is not alone. (laughs) Anyways, when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And in Luke and Matthew's account, we see that they both asked him why he was speaking in parables and what the parables meant. And just picture for a moment that you'd been there, right? Can you imagine yourself approaching Jesus after he speaks in riddles and being like, Jesus, that is great. One question, though, and it's just just for Toby. It's not really me, but Toby's nervous. He's afraid to ask. And I understand, but, like, I want to use your words. Jesus, one question why are you talking like that? You totally approve, but why? And what does that story mean exactly? Not, not for me. I get it. It makes total sense. Love what you did there. But Toby, Toby needs to, you know, he's kind of like not the sharpest tool in the shed. Can you imagine approaching Jesus, who's, who's your hero, who's your Lord, and who's leading you, and coming and being like, what, what are you doing? Outwardly, you want to project some kind of confidence, some kind of faith, some kind of, yeah, I'm on your team. And inwardly, you're probably having a little meltdown, a little crisis of confidence even. Uh, But while you and I are having this internal meltdown, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. And it is equal parts profound and terrifying. Have a look at verse 11 with me. Here's Jesus' answer. Jesus said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand. Why? Lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus said that. Jesus is strategically teaching through parables so that the crowd won't understand him. That rattle around in your brain for a moment. Let me show you where I'm getting that from. He says to his disciples, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. You, I have taught kind of plainly. You understand the secret. The mystery would be another way to translate that. But for those who are on the outside, For most of the crowd who doesn't know me in that way, I'm speaking in parables. I'm telling stories, riddles. And the reason I'm doing it is because I want them to see but not perceive what's actually going on. I want them to hear my words but I don't want them to understand them because what I don't want is for them to turn and be forgiven. Doesn't really sound like Jesus in some senses. So let me ask you this, is there room in your theology for a Jesus who doesn't need everyone to love him? Is there room in your theology for a Jesus who does not need everyone to love him? Here's why I think this is important. Sometimes in our desperation for people to know Jesus, we get a twisted and warped view of who Jesus really is. We picture this kind of desperate Jesus, who's willing to do, like, whatever it takes to get just one more person to put their faith in him and give him a little credit. He'll do anything for somebody, anybody to love him. And I don't, for a minute, want to pretend like Jesus isn't full of grace and full of love and like he doesn't reach out. He does those things, but he is not a simp and he is not a sucker. He is not desperate. He's not just willing that some won't choose him. In this passage, he is actually intentionally teaching in a way that's meant to keep people at arm's length. And in case you're tempted to say, well, maybe that's just kind of a weird one-off. We can explain that away if we look at the rest of the Bible. Jesus is actually quoting here. and He's quoting Isaiah chapter 6. You probably know Isaiah chapter 6. if You've been in church for a while. It's the passage where Isaiah has a vision of the Lord Yahweh in his temple. And the the train or the hem of his garment fills the entire temple. He's sitting on his throne and there's these burning bright seraphim singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations are shaking around Isaiah and, and his lips are cleansed by a burning coal. And then in this glorious moment, God says, who will go for me? Whom shall I send? And as I think you and I would also, he says, here I am, send me. Like, are you kidding me? Look at you. Everybody needs to know about you. Send me, I'll go. I don't know about you, but as a kid, that was my response to this text. You know what God's next words are? Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Isaiah, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their e- eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And Isaiah, like you and I, seems to, are you sure? Isaiah says, how long, O Lord? And God doubles down and he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Wow. God isn't desperate. Desperate followers. Jesus isn't desperate for followers. He doesn't need us. We need him. Jesus isn't going around canvassing for anyone to come to him. He takes those he wants and leaves those he chooses not to. Not because some are better and some worse, because he has decided who he will take and who he won't, and that's how it happens. Is there room in your theology for him? Is there room in your theology for a Jesus who doesn't need everyone to love him? Let me illustrate it this way. Jesus is not right now in a conference room, pacing around, checking his Instagram, and seeing how many people like him and if he can be like, validated by how many are following him. He's not waiting for the poll results to come in at the end of the day to see how popular he is. No, Jesus right now is sitting on a throne at peace, completely confident that everyone he wants to save will be saved when he wants, where he wants, and how he wants. That is the God we worship. He doesn't need us. We need him. He chooses whom he will. That's the Jesus of the Bible. That's the Jesus we worship when, as Jake said last week, we worship in truth as well as in spirit. And my hope for us today, why do I tell you this, is that that we might tremble and quake and just stare in fearful wonder at a God who doesn't need us at all and who still, in grace and kindness and benevolence, and holy condescension is willing to stoop down to our level and to bring us into his family, anyways. What a God we serve. But it doesn't end there. There's actually more. Not only has Jesus, despite not needing us, brought some into his kingdom he further stoops lower and explains to those of us in his kingdom what he's talking about when we still don't understand. Have a look with me at verse 13. And Jesus said to them, to the disciples, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Just one point before we get into the explanation The parables we're going to encounter in the next couple of weeks, most of them have to do with seed. And so I think part of what Jesus is saying here is, I have more agricultural parables to tell you. And if you don't get this one, I'm not very confident you get the other. So let me, in grace and humility, break this down for you, even though you probably should understand it. So let's go behind the scenes with Jesus and see how he breaks down this parable. Verse 14, Jesus says, the sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, and accept it, and bear fruit 30-fold, and 60-fold, and 100-fold. Now, before we spend a moment going through what Jesus is saying here, let me just kind of give a preamble. There are two basic camps in Christianity about what this parable means, which should be really humbling, because when you think about it, Jesus tells the parable, and we his people don't get it, and then he actually explains it like line by line, and we still can't quite agree on what it means. The human mind is so incapable of understanding the spiritual, eternal things of God. But nevertheless, we have two camps. One camp tends to believe that what Jesus is talking about here is four responses of someone who does not know Jesus to the word of Jesus, to his ministry, to the gospel. The other camp tends to believe that these are four responses that anyone, especially a Christian, may have to teaching the word telling us how to live our lives and what to change and what to kind of prune, if you will. Now, I want to be honest. There are certainly people who are holier and who are smarter on both sides of this debate than I am. Unfortunately, none of them have the microphone this morning, so you're stuck with me. My conviction is that this parable is about four responses for people who do not know yet Jesus. And let me show you one reason now, and I'll show you one later why I think that is. It's in verses 1 and verse 11. He's teaching a very large crowd, presumably a mixture of people, some who are in the kingdom, his disciples and those around them, and many who are not. And then in verse 11, he explains that the reason he's talking in parables is because he's speaking to those who are outside. And so I would argue if Jesus says, hey, I'm speaking in parables because that's how I want to communicate to people who are outside the kingdom, that it make much more sense for him to be telling these people who are outside the kingdom the four ways they may respond to his message than telling these, quote-unquote, outsiders how the people who are inside respond. That makes sense? You're nodding of heads. This means yes. This means no. Okay. Some of you don't know how to nod yet. We'll work on that. That's cool. So I'm arguing this morning that Jesus is speaking in the first version, that he's telling of four responses of people who don't yet know him and how they respond to the word about him. So let's jump in. Verse 14, we read, Jesus says, the sower sows the word. Now, I have a rant, maybe my favorite rant, about how the word in the Bible does not necessarily mean Bible. I'm gonna back up now so that I don't give you that rant, so that's not the point this morning. But I will say this. Here, I believe that the word, word, is referring to the good news of Jesus. Let me show you why I think that. First of all, this is the second time the word, word, or logos in Greek, has shown up in Mark's gospel. The first time it showed up was in the story of the leper who Jesus cleansed. You may remember Jesus cleanses his leprosy, sends him to the temple, tells him to tell no one, but we read in Mark 1 verse 45 that he, the leper, went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news. Same word, exact same word. It's this idea of a a message, of, of some kind of information I'm going to pass along to you. Additionally, in Matthew's version of this account, he includes a little extra detail. Jesus refers to the word as the, quote, word of the kingdom. It is the message of the kingdom, the, the good news about the kingdom, the gospel. So I'm again arguing that this is how people respond to the gospel message of Jesus. And we see four responses. Here's the first one we see the path. You see the path, you can picture the path in your head, right? Can you see the the hard-packed dirt? Elsewhere it says that people are trampling on the seed. There's there's no chance that that seed is going to penetrate and turn into anything. And it's only a matter of time before birds come along and think that it's a snack. Jesus says this is the kind of heart that's hardened, that keeps the gospel outside. And that kind of heart Satan comes into and takes away. Satan's not a dummy. Satan doesn't want the word to sit there and be there for someone to contemplate later on. When that word is rejected and kept out there, he comes and he takes it, out of sight, out of mind. And in, I think it's Luke's account, could be Matthew's, we actually read that he takes it away so that that person won't be saved. which I think is another reason that this is about four responses to the gospel of people who are not yet Christians. But in any event, this heart is the hardest of the four. It's the one that has the quickest, most decisive rejection of Jesus' message. It says, that's not for me, and Satan comes and says, you're right, it's not for you. Sleep a little longer. The second soil that Jesus refers to is the rocky ground. It's, it's shallow soil. and Because it's shallow soil, the seed springs up immediately. It seems to have a good response. But there's no root. There's nothing anchoring it. And the moment the sun rises, as it does every day, or so I'm told, that plant withers and dies. In fact, if you read Jesus' explanation, he says, they immediately receive it with joy, and they immediately fall away. Just as quickly as they came, they went. They were in when they thought following Jesus would be easy and fun. But the minute that this news that they claim to believe and to have latched onto comes with a price tag, the minute there's tribulation or persecution or undue hardship, they get out of the ship just as quickly as they got into it. In a very real sense, they're fair weather friends of Jesus. Many of you who have had a fair weather friend who was there when things are good and then bailed when things were not knows a fair weather friend is no friend at all. These are people who, who think Jesus is a golden ticket to a life of easy blessing. And when they discover that he's way more than that, they bail. Shallow soil. Third, we have the thorny soil. The thorny soil has thorns that grow up and and choke the seeds so that it yields no grain. And Jesus says, these are people who hear the word, but they care about other things more. They're the people who, who have the cares of the world, which is just like everyday ordinary cares. It's not wrong to have cares in this world. It's a messed up world. It's wrong to put them above the gospel message. But those cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the allure of being healthy and wealthy and instantly happy, And the desires for other things, like anything else. Jesus kind of like a blanket statement. Those things are more important to these hearts than this message, than this seed of the kingdom of God. And so these things crowd out and overlap and crush that seed, and it remains dead and buried and fruitless. And then fourth and finally, Jesus tells us about the good soil, which is exactly what it sounds like. The good soil is good soil where the seed can come in and put down roots deep into faith and send up shoots that break through the thorny things that we all struggle with and that leave fruit towering above those other temptations. Not a life that's free of temptations and distractions and failure, but a life where Jesus is more important than all those things. That is the result of the good soil we could summarize these soils with four words. We could say that we here have hard soil, keeps the gospel out. We have shallow soil that only superficially receives the gospel. We have dominated soil where other things are always more important than Jesus. And so Jesus isn't first. And Jesus refuses. If you're gonna have him, he's going to be first. He's not willing to be a sidekick to something else in our lives. We have dominated soil, and then we have good soil, which leads me to the question, so what? what? What do we do with this? I've actually been thinking about you this week, Pete, not because I think you're one of the bad soils, but because you're such a practical guy. Okay, what do we do with this information? How does that help us do life and ministry better? And I love that about you. And so... I've kind of had that in my head, how does this change my life? Other than like, now I understand a little better. Hopefully you do, maybe you're more confused, sorry. What do I do with this information? Well, I think we can do two things. I think if we see the two ways in which we show up in this parable, that we will be able to see two important points of application. Here's the first one. As you've probably figured out by now, the sower in the parable It's Jesus. He's the guy who's going around sharing the word of the kingdom, telling people to repent and believe the gospel. But, as Jake pointed out about three weeks ago when we were talking about our mission, in Matthew 28, Jesus commissioned us, you and me, to continue that messaging, to continue spreading the word about the kingdom, to continue sharing the secret. And so, in a sense, Jesus is definitely the first sower, but we have been tasked to continue the legacy. We have taken the torch from him. As you and I go and do that, we are going to run into at least four types of heart soil. There will be people whose hearts are hard. There will be people whose hearts are shallow, who, who seem to give a good response, but really are only in it during fair weather. There will be people who have some interest but care about other things more than Jesus and so never really give their lives to him. And there will be preciously, there will be good soil at times where people receive and put down roots and send up shoots and bear fruit for the glory of God. And here's where I think this gets really practical. Have you ever been discouraged before because you shared the gospel and it didn't go the way you were hoping it would? Anybody? Show of hands. How many people have tried to share the gospel and it didn't go the way? If you didn't raise your hand, I'm assuming you haven't shared the gospel yet. We can talk about that some other time. But I think we've all had that experience. You, you've tried, and whether you couldn't get the words out or whether they didn't respond, you, you've left being like, man, did I just like screw up that person's eternity? Is that on me? Did I misquote that verse? Did I do this wrong. Should I have said that? Was it the wrong moment? Etc. 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 And I think this parable is so freeing from that. Because Jesus tells us, listen, when you go share the good news, you can expect that there will be at least four types of heart soil and only one will have the result you're looking for. Even if these were in equal proportions, and I'd argue they're not, at least three out of four times, you're not going to see someone come to faith in Christ. You're gonna find someone who doesn't wanna hear it at all or has a superficial reaction or who kind of gets it but cares way too much about other stuff to leave that and follow Jesus. And that's okay. That's expected. In fact, not only will you and I encounter that, not only do, those other, do the other rest of us in this room encounter that, not only did the generation before us encounter that, not only did the first disciples encounter that, but Jesus encountered that. As he went and shared the word, not everyone liked what they were hearing. In fact, so many people didn't like what they were hearing that he ended up on a cross And though Jesus had the power and authority to change every single one of those hearts had he so chose, he, not needing us, chose instead to leave many hearts hard, shallow, or dominated and to only have some be good. And so when you and I share the gospel and we get a hard or a shallow or a dominated response, we have not failed. We have done exactly what we are supposed to do. We have, listen to this, you got the results Jesus expected you to get. He's not shocked by how things turned out. He's not disappointed. He's not taking you off the list of people he trusts to share the gospel. You have done what you were called to do. Your job is to sow the seed, not to stress about the soil. You get that? Your job is to sow the seed, not to stress over the soil. Leave that to him. He can make the soil anything he wants it to be. Your job, irrespective of the soil, is to sow the seed when you can. Now here at Redemption, we talk about courageous evangelism as one of our six pillars. We want to be people. I hope you want to be a person who's courageous in evangelism, who has this kind of humble boldness to them, this confidence of, man, you've got to know this Jesus. And I think one of the things that holds us back is our fear of, what does it say about me if they don't respond well? What does it say about me if this doesn't lead to salvation? And in this parable, there's freedom from that. There's freedom to see most of the time you are going to be rejected or you'll think someone's tracking with you and find out they weren't or they'll kind of have this kind of, I don't know, limping faith that's not really into Jesus but kind of added him on to their lives and you know what? That's okay. You will still hear, well done, good and faithful servant when you see Jesus. Because all he ever asked you to do was sow the seed. Let that free you from guilt and shame and fear. Let that lead you to courageous evangelism. That's the first application of this passage. Here's the second one. Uh, let me start with a question. How many people here have a heart? How many people here have a heart? Bernard, you're not fooling anyone. How many people here have I'm just kidding. This poor man, he he prayed for me before the service, he gave me a hug, and here I am making fun of him in front of everybody. Everyone here has a heart. If you didn't know that little biology lesson. If you have a heart, you are one of these four soils. Not that Jesus is making an exhaustive list, but we can all find ourselves somewhere in here. And my, my hope, my prayer, my delight would be to believe that all of us are the good soil. I would expect that All of us probably think we're the good soil at the very least. But here's what gave me pause as I, I studied this this week. I would assume that there were a lot of people who heard Jesus explain this parable and thought they were good soil, who ran in the other direction when he went to the cross, who distanced themselves from him, who found that they loved other things more than him in the end. And that, I'm telling you, is a terrifying prospect. There are a few hundred people in this room, and I don't have anyone in particular in mind, but in a room of this size, it is more likely than not that there are some of us who think we are good soil, but are deceived. Not like we're trying to pretend we're good soil. We genuinely believe it, but we're mistaken. And so the second application is a call for us to identify the soil of our hearts with painstaking honesty, because what those people who who may have heard Jesus know now is that they were never what they thought they were. It's too late. Those people who thought they were good soil and turned out not to be will never have an opportunity now to be part of the family of God. They are out forever, and that is a fate literally worse than death. And so this week, I've been wrestling through these questions, and I want to share some with you in just a moment. We, it's imperative that we ask ourselves from time to time, okay, where am I really? Here's one other thing I want to mention before I share the questions. In our corner of Canada here in St. Thomas and surrounding area, it is way too easy to think you're a Christian when you're not. Again, I don't have anyone in particular mind. It just is. Because Christianity is relatively respected compared to maybe how it's felt about in other areas in our country, in our world. And there's a relatively pleasant, easy life. There's not a whole lot of t- persecution associated with being a Christian, not in life that someone's gonna chop your head off sense. And you can go a long way with a social faith. You can open up doors to business if you just have some Christian morals and say you believe in Jesus, whether you do or not. It is so easy in our context to genuinely think you're a Christian and not be. And that is terrifying. So this morning, I just want to take a moment to work through a few questions that we can use to assess ourselves. Here's the first one. Can you honestly say, this is kind of like a level one question, can you honestly say that you've embraced the good news of Jesus? Let's just start there. Have you accepted that that you are a sinner, that you need a savior, that your sin has cut you off from the God who made you and who should be fulfilling you, and that you need Jesus's sacrifice to make you right with him. Have you accepted that? Or are you kind of keeping it out and trusting, well, if I do enough good, that should work out anyways? Or, you know, that's really a message for so-and-so. You should see my brother-in-law. He's the guy that needs the gospel message. Where are you at in this? Have you accepted Good news of Jesus, have you embraced it for yourself? Now, level two, does your faith have roots? Does your, just be honest with yourself. No one else is going to know. I'm not, I'm not after anybody, but I just want you to know for yourself. When you think to yourself honestly, can you say, no matter what tribulation or persecution or, or pain or hardship came my way, I can't see myself letting go of Jesus. I just can't. He, he is too much to me. I would hold on even if my whole family turned against me, if my whole culture was against it. Or, again, if you're honest with yourself, do you say, you know what, like, more of my Christianity than I'd like to admit is because of the people I'm around. I was raised in a a Mennonite home, a Baptist home, a, a Reformed home where Christianity was just the norm, and I have... Christian friends, and I've been to a Christian school, and I'm part of a Christian church, and it's just kind of the thing you do. But honestly, if you took me out of that context and took me to another place, and I got disconnected from church and got new friends who didn't know and love Jesus, you know what? Like, honestly, I'd probably drift. I'd probably stop going to church. I'd probably stop spending time in the Word and in prayer. I think that maybe I'm more of a cultural Christian than someone who actually knows Jesus. Does your faith have roots? can you see yourself wilting if the conditions were wrong here's the third question do i honestly this one hurts the most do i honestly desire jesus more than anything else can i honestly say that if i had to i would trade everything my family my stuff my status my comfort my pleasures everything if that's what it took to hold on to Jesus. Or if I'm honest with myself, is Jesus kind of one of several nice things in my life? Is he something that like you could actually put a price tag on? And I would say, that's too much. I love those things more than Jesus. I'm, I'm looking to that vacation or that promotion or that family dynamic to give me satisfaction and, and meaning and peace in life if I'm honest Where are you at in these three questions? Have you embraced the good news of Jesus? Does that faith have roots? Can you honestly say that Jesus is more important to you than anything else? Before we start to close, let me make one critical clarification. There is not a person in this room who can answer all of these questions the way they wish they could. Agree? There's not a person here who can say, I check all those boxes all the time. If you are, come and let me know, because like, you can mentor me. That'd be amazing. I don't want you to question your faith. That's not the point today. I don't want people who are good soil to walk away worrying that they're not. It's okay to admit that some of these things you're not perfect in. My burden is not for that. My burden is for people here today who believe that they are in Christ, believe they have an eternal relationship with him, and who are mistaken, deadly wrong. That's my heart today. And listen, if if as we're preaching, you're hearing that and God is doing that, I've been praying that this point of application might be used to bring somebody here today from darkness into life. Someone who walked in thinking they were good soil might leave being good soil. How glorious would that be? How, How worthy that would be of God and of what he said in his word this morning. And here's one thing I just wanna stress. If that's you, can I just assure you as far as it depends on me, that, that there would be no shame and no judgment on you. Even if for decades you have professed Christ and everyone thinks you're a Christian, looks to you as, a, as one of their personal heroes. If today was the day you said, look, I've actually been faking it. I didn't realize, but my eyes have been opened and I actually want Jesus now, there would be nothing but rejoicing and celebration. There's no one here to say like, oh, how dare you be whatever. so we just be glad that you are now who you once only thought you were. So please, in a moment, we're going we're gonna to sing a song. And if, if you're in this place, if God is doing this in your heart, please don't resist him. Please don't go back to faking it, especially now that you know. Would you take this time as we sing? Would you just reach out to him and say, God, like, I, I thought I was the real deal. And this morning, I'm genuinely not sure I am. Not just like I'm a Christian who has some struggle areas. Like, I'm not sure I love you the way that Christians, are, that Christians love you, period. Would you change me? As though Jesus does not need us, He is willing to take those who come to him. And so in a moment, we're going to sing, and I'd encourage you to pray, and then to come talk to me or somebody else, we would just love to celebrate. We would make our day, make our week, make our year to find that someone came from death to life today through the preaching of God's word. For now, let's pray, and then we'll sing. Father in heaven. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you write things that delight us and things that shake us up. Thank you that you're not a God who only can say light, fluffy things, that you also have serious heart-searching things in your word. Lord, as a church, we pray right now for transparency and honesty in our own souls and hearts. Would you show us, Lord, the type of soil we are? Father, it's our hope, it's our prayer that all of us might be the good soil and just struggle in some of these areas that we've been talking about. But Father, we also pray if there's anyone here today or many here today who are thinking, maybe I'm actually not good soil. I'm not who I thought I was. God, would you by your spirit, which has power over all hearts, change that. Make us into good soil. Bring us from death to life. Help us to be who we once only thought we were we might know you that we might bear fruit that we might enjoy you more than anything and have roots down deep in you and receive what you have said father would you do that this morning for your glory and your name's sake overcome our stubborn and stony and shallow hearts penetrate deep make us new and for those of us who do know you work in us as well good soil can get better help us lord we want more of jesus always always more of jesus give us that please Father, we also want to thank you for the words that we've heard this morning about evangelism. Thank you, Lord, that you are not some God who has a great scoreboard in the sky and who holds our apparent failures against us, but that you understand what we're facing, that you have let it be so, and that when we reach hearts that are hard and shallow dominated by other things, that you are pleased with us if we've only done what you called us to do, to sow the seed, to share the message. And while we pray, Lord, that you might give us lots of good soil to sow that seed on in our lives, we also ask that you help us to trust that you still love us, that we are still effective tools in your hands by your grace, even when we don't get the results we were hoping and praying for. Lord, thank you that though you don't need anyone, though you didn't need to die, you were willing to send your son anyways because your love is so great that you were willing to give us what we never could have deserved. May each of us this morning reach out and cling to that more closely than ever to the glory of God and for the good of everyone here. We pray that in Jesus' precious name.